from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in rainy Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why water recycling programs are bubbling up, how carbon markets protect indigenous communities, the hottest transportation trends from the Consumer Electronics Show, and could the Inflation Reduction Act spur a trade war? It's a taxing situation this week on 350. It's January 13th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us this Friday the 13th. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is our very own good luck charm, Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. <laughs> Hi. I don't feel very lucky this week, but thank you for that. I will endeavor to be lucky. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Are you superstitious? Oh. No, I'm not superstitious. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm just tired this week. No, but in general, are you, do you believe, are you superstitious? Uh, no, but I do, I do have a sixth sense for things. And often when I think of people, they call me or, or something. I mean, I do have a lot of that stuff that goes on, um, pretty regularly, but I, I don't know. That's just, I don't know what you call that. Serendipity. Supernatural. Um, Supernatural, (laughs) serendipitous, um, but I was thinking as you were going through your your um, intro there, Joel, I was wondering if there's any place where we can uh, find all of your puns. And... <laughs> I know. I know where this is going. <laughs> I know. We want an archive. John Davies has suggested an archive. <laughs> he is suggested being the archive archivist, too. So. Well, he, he, he created a, a funny little, I think, internal use video. Maybe it'll get out there. The world I don't really know. <laughs> I know. Uh, decla- I'm tempted to post it on yeah. social media, but yes. Creating. It's an in, it's an inside joke and not such, not such an inside joke that my co-host here loves puns. Yeah. So it, yeah. um, It's an yes. inside joke about inside jokes, actually. But uh, Yes. Yeah. And you're, you you love showing them off at our premier event, which we're getting ready yeah, for. Yeah, right we now. are. But before we get yeah. to Green Biz 23, in about 10 days, we'll have the State of Green Business Report, our 16th annual report coming up um, with 10 trends from uh, 10 of our analysts and editors here at Green Biz Group. Um, that's coming out on the Monday, the 23rd, with a uh, webcast um, featuring four uh, of those analysts. Um, and editors. So uh, check that out. Uh, it's free. Just have to sign up. And uh, we're excited to debut another edition of this. And yeah, that always leads into Green Biz 23 coming up in February. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. So let's maybe talk about Ooh. that in a week or two. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, how many commercials do we want to do before we get to the Week in Review? Well, it's raining here as it's been forever here in the Bay Area, and it seems, I think, the forecast calls for rain uh, well into 2024, at least it feels that way. But let's talk about water, and specifically water recycling programs. Um, This is, I think, something that's been talked about for a long, long time. 
Um, and uh, we have a piece from uh, Matt is Orsog, uh, from uh, Senior Advisor at Responsible Alpha, talking about water recycling programs and are, are starting to become, I think, of interest to investors and certainly to much bigger companies than had been involved with this before. Um, I, I know um, in the aforementioned uh, State of Green Business Report, one of the trends is about water tech written by uh, one Heather Clancy. I mean, is this, uh, this is an area I know you've been looking into. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk about it because I, pu- I published a story over the holiday. But um, a lot of the corporations, um, as you mentioned before, are really leaning into the idea that water should be reused or recycled within their organizations. And the piece I wrote about over the holidays had to do with Amazon and how they're they're reusing water in their data centers. As we know, d- data centers are very water thirsty, if you will. They They require it for cooling all the equipment, keeping it from burning burning too hot or running too hot. And there, um, I think what, what was interesting to me was, first of all, this this particular piece you mentioned is, is a Q&A with um, someone from Nextera Distributed Water. I didn't even know that they had a water division until I, I, um, I, I, you know, till Matt pitched me on this piece, but there, this, what this organization is doing is going out to different cities and working with, you know, this requires agreement between municipalities and commercial off takers of the water or buyers, if you will, people that are consuming the water, but they're working on um, what are called sort of water hubs and they have a, an official brand called water hub, but, but the idea sort of applies. And in this, this, um, I was talking to Amazon about this where, large corporations will go in, they'll, they'll figure out in an, in a community that they need water for certain things. And then they'll work out a plan with the municipality to make it so that it's not too taxing on the, um, on the existing reservoir or groundwater or wherever the water is being drawn from. So the idea is that, um, we need to be a lot smarter. Um, it just feels like this is the corporate angle there are a lot more corporations really leaning into their water strategies right now and getting a lot more specific about how they're how they're doing it. Yeah. So, yeah. And and I think you know, first of all, NextEra uh, is uh, traditionally an energy company. They're one of the largest energy producers uh, and utilities and independent power producers. Um, they have uh, uh, down in the in the southeastern U.S. Uh, FPL, which used to be Florida Power and Light, is one of their. Uh, their subsidiaries, Gulf Power Company, so they're, they're very active down there. But I think what's interesting here is uh, making a connection, which has been known for and discussed for a long, long time, but still um, isn't generally uh, you know, thought about, is the connection between energy and water. Mm. Um, it, takes, uh, it takes water to make energy, certainly in fossil fuel energy or nuclear power. Um, and... In order to move water, I know here in California, something like 20%, I think it's lower than that nationally, but um, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20% of all the energy used in the state is used to move and treat water, pumping and filtering and, and all of that. And so um, water is a huge uh, energy user uh, and in some municipalities, it's far and away the biggest line item in the budget is water, uh, the local water municipality or municipal utility district. 
And so, you know, reusing water, I think, you know, reduces that energy load. It, it, it obviously takes some maybe ex extra energy to treat the water. I don't know, maybe not no more than just taking water that comes through the normal, normal sewer system. But I think this is a, this energy water nexus has, has long been an area of interest and mm -hmm. concern. And yeah. it's not, I'm not surprised that a, that a major energy company would be leaning into water recycling. No, I'm not either. Um, it, it really, it just, it, you know, but the point, but the point, whole point of this is yes, it's been talked about for a while, but there is a lot of action happening um, now. And I like the idea that, that, or, you know, it's taking collaboration. I know we use that word a lot, but, but these projects take a while to get set up. Um, they require also investments by corporations in the, in the infrastructure. So, yep. It's ironic that we're talking about this because you're being deluged right now, obviously. Um, but it's, we either have too much or too little, or it's not in the right place. And we need to be, um, far more thoughtful about how we manage. Yeah. Well, let's uh, move over to, uh, uh, a topic that also, you know, connects to water, which is carbon, um, and carbon markets in particular. Uh, and one aspect of carbon markets that doesn't get enough attention, which is, uh, how do we use the, the the funds flowing through carbon markets, which are becoming trillions and trillions of dollars, excuse me, billions and billions of dollars so far, <laughs> um, uh, to uh, ensure the to protect uh, the rights of local communities and indigenous populations? And we have this piece from Valentina Guido from the Rocky Mountain Institute (RMI) uh, talking about how uh, you know high quality carbon credits can play a crucial role in decarbonizing outside of a company's value chain and specifically around uh, protecting, managing and restoring natural ecosystems in the global south. Um, this is, I think, fascinating because, you know, we talk about planting trees, we talk about installing more renewable energy, and a lot of that's domestic uh, in Europe or Asia or, or uh, North America. But you know, how does this benefit those who are the most vulnerable and least able to uh, to fend for themselves in a climate changing world? And by the way, this is unique to the global south, even here in 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 the developed world, certainly in the United States, there are communities who are who are getting the short shrift. They're they're again uh, more vulnerable to to the ravages of a changing climate, but less uh, able to. Uh, both individually and collectively as a community to, to create the kinds of resilience uh, uh, infrastructure and other things that, that are needed. But this piece is about the global South. And I think it's, it's uh, this is one of those, again, topics that's been around for a while, but I think it's really important in this moment that we bring it to the fore. Yeah. I mean, I think when I saw this piece, it reminded me of the fact that many of the renewable energy projects to go back to and you know another example of how we don't often think about this in terms of siting in terms of who owns the, owns the land and so forth but i really do like um this piece really gets very ta um tactical and practical and talks about how um as a as a corporation potentially supporting one of these projects you can make sure that the project is being recognized at that level so looking at things like land tenure of the indigenous people that might be in that area, how they're being, um, how they're getting compensated for that, whether 
um, whether they they have a say, right? So they need to have a say in what the project is. They 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 should they should be consulted beforehand, before, rather than hey, we're doing this and here's what we're doing. <laughs> um, there's that you know so that which speaks to the participation of of the peoples there. But by the way, are they working? Are, is there are there jobs in these projects for? For the individuals, um, how is how is the thing how is the information being declared and and being um, uh, shared with with the community? So I think what that yeah it's a really good RMI piece that um, Rocky Mountain Institute. I know they don't call themselves that anymore, but RMI um, you know has some, just some really great practical ideas here. So. Yeah, they don't, they don't call themselves Rocky Mountain Institute anymore. They just go by their three letters, but. We'll always know them for their uh, Colorado Rocky Mountain uh, uh, origins. Uh, the, the other thing that's interesting about this, uh, I think, also is the relationship between indigenous uh, populations, uh, climate change, and biodiversity. Um, at the Nature Forum at Verge uh, back in October, uh, I moderated a panel with uh, that included someone named Stephen Nita, who's the managing director uh, in Canada for an organization called Nature for Justice, and he lives way up north. I can't remember whether it's the Northern Territories or the Yukon, but uh, pretty pretty far north. And uh, and his tribe and his community uh, uh, are very involved with maintaining, as, as most indigenous communities are, maintaining the biodiversity of their land. And he had some statistics, and I'm not going to get it right, I, I don't have it committed to memory or in front of me here, um, where something like 80 or 90% of biodiversity is, is, is sitting in indigenous uh, land. And so, uh, and that's true not just in, in in North America; it's true globally. And so, you know, as the monies flow from these carbon markets, there is a uh, an opportunity, to say the least, if not an obligation, to to uh, make sure that those lands are protected, that the people who are protecting those lands are supported. And I think that you know we're going to be seeing a growing number of funds and mechanisms around the world to do exactly that. So can we move to another story? Sure. Yeah. Yep. And, and this is, uh, I think, just a really fascinating area too on the technology side here in the developed world. Uh, our colleague Vartan Badalian spent, uh, I guess, a week running around and getting lost. God bless him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, in, in Las Vegas at uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, as it's now known. Uh, more than 115,000 people there this year, uh, which is actually par for what it's been. It's just been this yeah. massive, massive event. I know you used to go uh, mm -hmm. back in your uh, tech reporting days. I've, I, I've gone as well, although it's been several years. And he, uh, Vartan, is our transportation analyst, looked at uh, what's going on with transportation. And, uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, two words, software and sustainability. <laughs> Right. Um, and I, you know, hey, software is queen. I say software is queen. He says it's king. I say it's queen. Um, but one of the big reasons that's so important is because of the way that you can update technologies without actually having to pull out the hardware and, um, and replace things and waste things, if you will. So, so software as a consumer electronics um, advantage is a huge um, because that is the way that um, you sustain the life and you extend the life right so many of these things you know your iPhones your 
your Android phones, your televisions, your whatever, they they're, they were, event, you know, many of them have been um, designed for obsolescence, say. But as you enable and endow them with more intelligent software that can bring new features to them without having to actually update the thing itself, that is super important. So I think um, in this context, he was really talking about it re relating to automobiles, right? So the way that a Tesla vehicle can be updated over the air. And and, and that's a huge thing. Um, the other thing is that you could have subscriptions. You could even have a subscription to a car if you think about it, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess that's called kind of leasing, but, <laughs> um, but you know, like, why do you own this thing? Um, so software for me is huge. It's always been huge. And I, I love that he pointed that out. Um, at it. I also love, there, there was one like, and I'm just going to mention this really it's kind of a little random, and, and but I thought it was super interesting um, that he mentioned this, some LIDAR sensors. So we have LIDAR in, in, in automobiles to do things like handle, you know, where you are and give you lane. So that's lane the, the light and, version uh, where it's sensitive to light as opposed to sonar, which is looking at sound it, waves. Uh, exactly. This is, this is how the autonomous vehicles find their way around through using yep. this technology called LIDAR. I'm sorry, go ahead. Right, but he mentions it, it with respect to apparently there's some some of these are now being used to monitor melting ice caps. Mm, wow, you know, like so th there's technology in these autom automobiles that are being deployed for um, data collection purposes in in terms of climate. So I think, yeah, I mean, I I love CE. I I used to love going and just kind of roaming around and just in in and I'm glad he got the chance to do this kind of just sinking in, letting it sink in because that's. If you try to take it all in, great. But you, if, but I love that he found some themes. What were really, you mentioned? Obviously, you set me up to talk. But what what struck you? Well, so you you kind of covered it. The the software is is queen here. Um, that uh, you know this is you know, cars have basically become computers uh, on wheels, uh, and um, uh, and those computers can do lots of different things. And you know I I'm lucky enough to have one of those cars that's largely an electric vehicle, that's largely a computer on wheels, and the software gets uh, updated uh, over the air. And all of a sudden, you know, one, one day you get in the car and it says, you've got an update, and you'll get a little thing that says, oh, now you can do these things, or we've tweaked this, or you, we've moved this from this part of the screen to that part of the screen because it was distracting, or um, and then some fun and silly things. But... It's really nice to be able to do that. You don't have to bring it in anywhere. Uh, it's constant. It's being updated. Oh, it seems every few weeks, sometimes more than that. Uh, even every once a week, there's an update. Some of those are obviously safety related or just to improve the technology to make uh, the, the lidar, the sensors, um, uh, more attuned. So I, I just think, uh, you know, that's we're destined, uh, that's what cars will be. It's not just the nice cars that people, uh, that some of us are able to afford, the Teslas and the Bolts and 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 the, the I, BMW i-Series and all of those and the Leafs. Um, this is basically the future of, of vehicles and not that far off future. I think by the end of this decade, we, we, we every car will be some version of that. And, and you know, darn near every one of them is going to be electric. He does also talk about the fact that that the traditional internal combustion engine vehicles um, 
you know, he says that they were dead. Uh, they're not dead yet, but they're... It's in my driveway, so yeah, I don't know about it. Mine isn't dead. They're certainly... No. Um, uh, but but if, if CES is the future of the near-term future, uh, the near-term future does not have gas-powered cars. And I think that's a... A change we uh, we who care about the climate uh, are all looking forward to seeing. It's a new year and uh, time to check in with James Murray at Dover Business Green in the UK after uh, what was, uh, I think, undoubtedly a tumultuous year in Britain. And um, uh, James, uh, first of all, Happy New Year. And uh, how does it feel to start, uh, turn the calendar to January? Indeed. Happy New Year, Joel. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's quite a nice <laughs> feeling, I think, in the UK for us to turn the calendar after our, our year of three prime ministers and four chancellors and rolling political chaos i think there's a there's a general hope for something a bit more stability and dare i say boredom um the from the political elite that i think lots of people are craving well before before you get into the, the really the politics uh you know one of the things you didn't mention after the prime ministers and everything else is you have a new king uh lest lest we forget uh, uh that transition um and there was talk when when king charles uh first uh stepped into the throne uh, that finally we have a climate champion uh, there. Uh, do you have any indication that anything is changing there from the crown? Nothing firmly. I mean, I think there's there's an obvious, a very, the palace is looking to be very, very careful about accusations of politicization of the role. And I think when he did step up to take the role, there was a, an immediate kind of briefing and, and indeed, I think, a statement from the king saying that he he would have to step back from many of the charities and causes that he holds dear. Um, and he has done that. And I think, um, I think you know, Prince William and some of the other royals are going to be picking up the patronage of some of the groups of which he was involved. So I think in the coming months, we'll start to hear a little bit more about that because, he, you know, he was involved in things like the Cambridge um, Institute for Sustainability, lead, the corporate leaders group there. Um, and a lot of kind of green business stuff in the UK. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Um, however, I, I think there is a sense that obviously he, he's not going to change his opinion completely. So he might not make quite as pointed public comments as he used to, but I think people fully understand where he broadly stands on these issues. And um, while he obviously, you know, can't intervene on matters of policy, I think, you know, he will probably continue to provide a bit of guidance and a bit of a a sense that you know that the institution of the royal family is very much on the side of progressive business and and sort of climate action and environmental protection i think they've kind of rebranded themselves in recent years as that is one of their kind of core causes uh, so it'll be interesting to see with the coronation the, the formal coronation coming up this summer and and obviously the the various dramas within the House of Windsor that are playing out at the moment, um, how they do look to continue to advance those causes, whilst obviously being careful, they don't want to fuel this accusation that he's meddling, or that he's or that he's politicising his role in any way, because that obviously does risk backlash. So no major change there, but um, one sort of unintended, uh, I guess, emerging issue here. It has to do with how the Inflation Reduction Act uh, here in the U.S. is being uh, taken over over on your side of the pond. And there may be some trade issues. Talk about that. 
Yeah, so it's been fascinating to see, actually. I mean, it's kind of doing what I think everyone hoped it would do in that it's it's sort of pushing others to go further, faster and, and harder. So the European Commission um, and, and the EU were, were a bit of sabre rattling over this. They were sort of saying, look, the Inflation Reduction Act is providing too much direct support to uh, US industry. And, you know, how does that play with with WTO rules and trade rules? And there's been this sort of, you know, at the moment, it's no more than sabre rattling, but there have been these noises off saying, hang on a second, that you're kind of bending the rules a bit here. And if you're going to do that, then maybe we should do the same. Or, or do we look at tariffs? Um, and then the flip side of that is in the EU, you have this this proposal for what they're calling a carbon border adjustment mechanism or a CBAM, as it's, as it's rather naturally known, uh, which would see... Um, potentially tariffs placed on imports from countries that don't have a carbon price that matches the EU's carbon mm. price, which currently is pushing towards 100 euros a tonne. I mean, it's getting higher and higher all the time um, as as that market tightens. Um, so you've kind of got, you've got, and, and then you throw China into the mix as well. So you have the three big trading powers in the world, the EU, the US and China. And they're all starting to kind of flex their muscles a little bit on levels of support that they provide to clean industry and then potential response to that with some form of trade barriers to say hang on we want a level playing field so we'll ratchet up this and sort of push you to do more there um <clears throat> and in some ways this is worrying because you have the three biggest trading blocks in the world talking about the prospect of what could become a trade war uh, but on the other hand it's kind of what some environmental economists and campaigners have been hoping for for a long time is that you end up with a rather than a race to the bottom on trade standards you end up to a race to the top on clean tech innovation and investment and and carbon prices and the like um and if that plays out as hoped then the inflation reduction act could suddenly have this you know this multi-billion dollar impact in the u.s but actually have quite a considerable impact overseas as well as the likes of germany and france and others say well, we're going to have to match this because we don't want all the EV manufacturing and all the hydrogen and carbon capture investment just going to the US. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be a big story to watch this year, how that plays out, how much, you know, how much of it is sabre rattling, you know, how each side responds, whether they start to, because of the other talk was interestingly, I think the White House put a briefing out about talk of a trade deal on green steel and saying, okay, well, one of the ways we could get around this CBAM is we'll say, okay, well, we definitely won't have tariffs on any steel that's produced to low carbon standards. And then you provide a massive incentive for the world steel manufacturers to start investing in these new low carbon technologies. So um, real kind of big geopolitics stuff, but it could have massive implications for kind of clean tech rollout and, and business development. Yeah, fascinating. So real quickly, well, what are some of the other things you'll be watching this year? Uh, I think in the UK, uh, as I mentioned at the start, the question is, will we have a return to a degree of stability? Um, it looks like we're staring down the barrel of quite a big recession and and how much will kind of investment in net zero be seen as a potential solution to that? Uh, we're in the run, sort of the countdown now over the next two years to an election. Uh, the opposition's talking really vocally going into the new year about kind of green investment and seeing that as a means of um, accelerating the recovery and driving that forward. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the government responds. Uh, we've got uh, a court case, um, or sorry, the, the courts have ruled that the UK government has to update its net zero strategy uh, by the end of the first quarter, by March. 
So there's a big sort of date in the diary there where the government's going to have to come back forward with something that's a bit more ambitious than what it's got at the moment. It'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, and then just right across Europe, you've just got this huge wave of projects that are in the pipeline. Uh, there's lots of interesting stuff going on with hydrogen, carbon capture and storage. Uh, the electric vehicle rollout is going faster than anyone expected, which is great news, but then it creates the challenge of can the infrastructure keep pace with it? And I think there's going to be a very, very big story about the extent to which um, charging infrastructure can keep pace with the huge numbers of EVs that are hitting the roads, uh, which could obviously pre pre present a bit of a challenge to the rollout if that's not managed correctly. Um, but yeah, lots of these projects in the pipeline of can they just get the policy support and can they get the final investment decisions that allow them to start to deploy at scale? Um, and, and then we could be in for a really interesting second half of the decade if they do. Well, we're going to be in for an interesting uh, year, it sounds like, and uh, so many issues. And we're going to keep on top of those uh, tracking with you every month or so. Uh, so thanks for that update. And uh, James Murray is Editor-in-Chief of Business Green in London. And James, thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com 350 and you'll learn more about the organization stories and events we mentioned this week, including the SOGB State of Green Business 23 uh, webcast coming up on January 23rd. While you're over on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We've now got eight, soon to be nine. Uh, and uh, they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. And we love to hear from you, so send your comments, questions, and tips to us at 350 at greenbiz.com. I'll be off next week, but Heather will be back here with Dylan Sigler for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.